formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Uh, we ask, Lord, that um, you'll help us to see um, Jesus, but I think a little bit more, let us see the disciples today uh, because they reflect who we are in, in regards to seeing Jesus oftentimes. And so help us with that, we pray. Uh, bless us as your people and let us be a blessing to you. Let us have open hearts and ears and eyes uh, that we would take in the seed. Let the soil of our being be plowed up through our worship so that the seed finds a, a really fertile place because uh, we want to produce fruit in our life, Lord, so that the world sees that Jesus is real and that he makes a difference in our lives. But we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people side with me, please. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we have a few catchphrases uh, in the English language, a few idioms that have the word breath in them. For example, we say, let's catch our, our breath. Um, it's not like it's trying to run away from us. Uh, when we say let's catch our breath, it means let's do what? Let's, let's slow down. We might say, Take a deep, take a deep breath. It generally means that we need to, to calm down. Yeah, relax. This could mean that we're anxious about something, that we're angry about something. We might say, don't hold your breath. That means that you... Yeah, don't, don't wait. It means you shouldn't count on something to happen or someone to do something. It, it literally means release it. Just let it go. Probably not going to happen. And one more. You take my breath away. I was looking right at Rob when I said that, by the way. This could mean that you did something inspiring. It means I might have something to do with beauty, surprise, or someone basically hit you in the stomach. Either way, that works. Slow down. Calm down. Unexpected, surprising, gut-punching. I think that's a pretty good description of the emotional status of the disciples upon hearing the news that Jesus had risen from the dead. The women came rushing back to the disciples after first light to tell them, hey, the stones rolled away, the body's gone, so were the guards. We saw a couple of angels who said, he's risen. Jesus appeared to us on the way and said, go back and tell the disciples what you've seen. Tell them to go to Galilee and I'll meet them there. Slow down. <laughs> Calm down. Unexpected, surprising. Oh. Gut-wrenching. Gut-punching. 
Mary Magdalene hung back in utter disbelief and grief. She was crying so hard that when Jesus showed up, she thought that he was the gardener. And she begged him, show me where the body is and, and I'll go get him. And when she calmed down, she saw the risen Savior and reported the same story to the disciples. Peter and John ran to the tomb. They saw the same things. They saw the unguarded tomb. They saw the stone rolled away. They saw the empty place where the body laid and the burial clothes folded up at the head and at the feet, neatly placed in their particular place. They saw everything that the ladies saw except They didn't see Jesus. Slow down. Calm down. Something unexpected, surprising, gut-punching. How will they ever get past this? How will they find the moment where their excitement in seeing him alive will be mixed with the inner turmoil of knowing that they had abandoned him in the time of need and that some had even denied him. That's going to be an awkward reunion. I want you to turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John this morning. John 20, 19 to 23. John 19 to 23. How are they going to get past this? Well, the first thing that they needed was to overcome their fear. I want you to look with me at verse 19 this morning. The first thing they need to do is to overcome their fear. It says this, John 20 and 19, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear. Fear is driving their life right now. The doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And in that very moment, Jesus came and stood among them and said what? Hebrew word for me today. Shalom. Peace. Peace be with you. It was the same night as the resurrection. Peter may have had an encounter with Jesus on his own, but it's not recorded in John. Paul records this in his, uh, his gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15. But they were self-imposed prisoners. They probably went back to the upper room where they had taken the Passover. But instead of celebration, there was panic and there was despair. If the Jews arrested and murdered Jesus, surely they are going to do the same thing for us or to us. And so they isolated themselves and they held held themselves up in a room until the time was right to go back home, back north to Galilee. And then suddenly, through locked doors, the resurrected Messiah was standing in their midst. I have a feeling there was an extra added layer of fear. And the first thing that he does is he chews them out. 
He yells and screams at them for their fair weather followership. He calls down curses upon them and says that he's going to go and find some other more faithful disciples. He says how embarrassed he is to be associated with a bunch of cowering cowards. Uh, Well, that sounds more like what we would say. But that's not what Jesus said. In fact, you're not going to find any of that in Scripture. Jesus knows our hearts. And he knows our fears. And he knows what makes us fearful people. Jesus is not looking to condemn. He's looking to move things forward. He doesn't criticize He comes and says, Shalom, peace. Slow down, calm down. I know this is unexpected. I know it's surprising. I know it's a little gut punching right now because you don't know what to do with me. I get that. I understand that. It's okay. Peace. What's the remedy for fear? God's peace. Peace with you. It's not just a formal greeting. It's a truth. Jesus is imparting something to them. He's imparting wholeness where there is brokenness. Does that make sense, church? That's what Jesus does all the time. He's about bringing wholeness to you and I. That's what that shalom means. Is it a Middle Eastern greeting? Absolutely it is. It's sort of like saying hi. But that's not what comes out of Jesus. Jesus is imparting a truth into broken men who thought there was no hope of going forward. They were going to pack their bags as soon as things settled down, head north to Galilee, take up those nets again, go back to their old lives, do their old things, and forget they ever met this person called Jesus. You see, that's not the agenda for Jesus. Jesus is about restoring things. He's about taking broken people who are so afraid that they won't be received again into God that somehow their sin is so great, so much greater than God's love and God's mercy and God's grace that they don't even think about coming back into His presence and receiving those things. Do you know people like that? Do you know people who think their sin is so much greater than the love of God? That's not true. It's not true at all. Jesus comes to bring wholeness and peace in places that are broken. Remedy number two, what do we need? We need peace. The second thing we need, though, is evidence. Why? Because we're visual people. We're tangible people. We want to see, touch, hear, feel, taste. We want the senses to be engaged or we're not going to believe it. Well, Jesus understands that as well. So that's why he gives us evidence. Jesus knows that we will never get over the initial fear until we really know it's him. He doesn't condemn them, the disciples, for their lack of faith or understanding, but he meets their needs for verification. Notice what Jesus does in verse 20, please. And after he said this, after he imparted peace, shalom, 
After he said this, he did something, church. What did he do? Evidence. He showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were what then? Do you see what just happened? Gone. Fear is gone. Overjoy. Joy comes when the evidence is presented and received. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. As author Josh McDowell put in his title work, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Has anybody ever read that one, that apologetic? It's a great work, small. If, you don't, if you've never read it, it's a great book. So now he, dis, he, he demands this from his disciples. You've now seen me. Now what are you going to do with me? Are you going to believe me or not? Was he or was he not the risen Savior? He simply points to the marks of his saving grace and they were overjoyed. By the way, I love this eschatologically, which means in the future. It means that someday when Jesus comes back, he's going to manifest himself to the Jewish people and he is going to be one who was pierced. How is he going to reveal himself to the Jewish people? He's going to reveal himself through his wounds. That's interesting, isn't it? Get over the fear. Make up your mind on who I am. Why? Look with me at verse 21. And again, Jesus said, Peace, shalom. Uh, whenever things are repeated in the Bible, pay attention to what's going on. Jesus is about restoration. He's about wholeness. Get over your fear. Look at the evidence. Why? Here's the part. See to that, that issue. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am. You've got a job to do. Oh my gosh, they killed Jesus. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to hang out, guys, until this thing blows over and then we're going to go back to our old life. Okay, okay, okay. Oh my gosh, who's in the room with us? It's Jesus. Oh my goodness sakes. What are we going to do with this? He is not going to accept. Oh my gosh, we ran away from him. We even denied him. Oh my goodness. Shalom, peace. What? What? Peace. Wholeness. Jesus, is it really you? Look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side. Oh my gosh, it really is you. Oh my goodness, Lord, we can have a relationship with you again? Absolutely, by the way, I'm gonna tell you that that's true because I'm gonna give you a job to do now. I haven't abandoned you. Now I'm gonna put you to work. That's another way you're going to know that I've received you and that things that were broken are gonna be made back whole. I'm going to set you out to do the mission of God. What an amazing thing. The third remedy is you get a divine assignment. Fear is gone. Evidence comes. Assignment follows. Get a divine assignment. For a second time, Jesus declares something over them. Peace, shalom, wholeness, it's finished. Sin has been paid for. Death has been conquered. Life can be abundant and whole. You can be forgiven and given a second chance. How do I know that? Because God gives me a job to do. 
It's not another type of mission. It's an extended mission. Just as the Father has sent me into the world to convey who He is, that's what Jesus is saying, now I'm sending you out into the world. Just as the Father sent me into the world to redeem it, I'm sending you out as ambassadors with the good news of redemption. But there's a second characteristic of the mission that we need to be mindful of. Jesus is not stopping His role, but He's adding to it. The word sent here for Jesus implies an ongoing activity, which means Jesus never stops doing something. I want you to notice the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and 19, 19 and 20. You all know this. Therefore, go and make disciples, church, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I command you. That's the part that gives us the information. It's the second half that I want you to remember. And lo, I will be with you always. Jesus is not giving them an assignment and then bailing. He's saying, I'm giving you an an assignment that's my assignment. And we're going to work together and get this done. I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I did that for a time, but I'll never do it again. Wow, that's an amazing promise, isn't it? But how can Jesus be with them every step of the way when he will ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father? I don't understand. How does that work? Look with me at the next remedy found in verse 22. The next remedy for this is a new life through the work of the Holy Spirit. 22. And with that, with the mission, with the commission to go out and do what he had done, with the restoration that Jesus has now brought into the disciples' life, he knows he needs They need something else. They need the very presence of God. And with that, he, keyword, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, you can only serve God effectively if you have a new breath blown into you. Or as Jesus said in John 3 and 16, and actually before that, You must be born again. You have to have a new birth. You have to have new life, a new breath within you in order to function in the way that God wants you to function. Now, there are scholars who believe that this was an empowerment for ministry. I'm going to disagree with that. The baptism of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Acts 2 and given by Jesus on the day of Pentecost was for empowerment. I believe that this was for life, new life. First, the disciples did not believe Jesus. That's my first point out of two points. They did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He didn't believe, they didn't believe that all the way up until his death. In fact, it was even after the resurrection. If you look at Matthew 20 and verse 16, 17 and following, they still don't believe in him for some reason. The disciples did not believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in the finished work of Jesus. They believed He was an earthly Messiah, the anointed one of God, the son of David, who would deliver the people from the hands of the Romans, reestablish the Solomonic expansive dynasty. But that all all went to the wayside. Why? He died. 
and all of their expectations, all of the things they were dreaming about, all of their understanding of who he was as a person went into the garbage can. Does that make sense, church? We're heading home. This is all over. You see, they needed a rebirth. They needed a fresh breath of air. So secondly, remember this verse that we read this morning in Genesis 2 and 7. It gives us indication of really what took place. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. He was formed, but he wasn't what? He wasn't alive. He wasn't alive until God did something, church. Breathed. The breath of life. And then man became a living being. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint or the LXX, has the same word for breathed as here. In the New Testament Greek, it's a, it's a, it's a word that only comes about one time, which makes it so significant, which is why I pull out and understand this passage the way that I do. It's also alluded to the book of Ezekiel when he spoke metaphorically about the dead bones of Israel rising and it was only until God once again did what? Did the nation become a living entity again? Breathed. Breath of life. This is about life. It's about new birth by the Holy Spirit of God. Only then could they effectively be ambassadors for Jesus and do what he needed them to do. There's a great story. If you've not read the biographies of the Wesley brothers that formed the Methodist church, John and Charles Wesley. Have anybody read any biographies by them? Biographies? Yes, Brian has. It's amazing. Those guys set out from England as Anglicans, Church of England. They, they came to the Americas. They landed down course to South Carolina, made their way up through the states, and they couldn't figure out why they weren't getting any converts, why their ministry was so dead. They sailed back, and there was a person on the boat that basically said, um, are you born again? And John and Charles Wesley said, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> no idea. They get back to England. They attend Aldersgate, that famous prayer meeting, and... John and Charles said, you know, there was something warm that came over us, this amazing love that came over us. And it was then that they were born again. So you can go out and you can do all the ministry you want, but if you don't know Christ intimately, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're going to be ineffective. Why do you think Jesus breathed on the disciples? He needed them to be born anew, born again in their spirit so they could be effective individuals. They had to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which came on the day of Pentecost. Nonetheless, this is about life. It's about being ambassadors, effective ambassadors. I want you to notice 23 as well. 23. If you forgive anyone's sin, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, this is a difficult verse to translate, but I'm going to disagree with the Roman Catholic Church that says that this was the beginning of the apostolic and priestly authority, whereby they have the authority to forgive and not to forgive sins. You see, the Bible teaches us that we're all priests of the Most High God. 
We all have this authority. This is the point. I want you to listen to St. Augustine or St. Augustine who wrote this. The church's love, which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, discharges the sins of all who are partakers with itself, but retains the sins of those who have no participation therein. Now, if that's a little bit complicated for you, I'm going to use some other language that Jesus uses. Whatever you loose will be loosed, and whatever you bind shall be bound. Who is he, speak, he speaking to? Anybody who follows Christ. He brings that up in Matthew 16, but he brings it back up again in Matthew 18. And he talks to all the disciples in regards to that. It's simply a description of the results of sharing the gospel. If a person repents of their sins and receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can declare that their sins are forgiven, if both are true. You have the authority to do so based on the word of God and the authority of Christ. Conversely, if they do not repent, you can declare that they are not forgiven. This has nothing to do with an elevated position of some over others, like a formal priesthood. But the truth of the gospel in the lives of believers and unbelievers. How many of you have memorized 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, and to cleanse, of us, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is a truth. If you confess your sins, God will cleanse you. As a church, can we all agree on that? That's what we've just done. As a church, we said to any individual, have you confessed your sins before God? I have. You are, you are free. God has covered you. As a church, we can say that by the authority of God and by the authority of Jesus Christ himself. We can also say the, other, the, the converse, which is, have you confessed your sins? I have not. I have not repented. Then you are still in your sins. You are not forgiven by God. Does that make sense? We can all declare that as priests under the Most High God, under the authority of the Word of God, and under the authority of Christ that He gives to us. That's what that means. If you're born again, you're part of the kingdom of God, and you have the authority of God to make those declarations. We're not the one looking at the person, deciding whether they are or not. The Word of God does that. Yes? You following me? That's what this is talking about. So let me draw this to a close today. If you're here today and you're thinking about the fear factor, about what God is doing in your life, you need to know this, that God is not against you. God is for you. God wants you to move forward. And you may be here this morning thinking, Pastor Dan, I am so broken. I, there's no way God can fix me. Well, you have a very low view of God, my friend. You have a low view of His love. You have a low view of His mercy and His grace. You have a low view of what God can do. God can take a dead man and bring him back to life. Is that not what we're celebrating today? The resurrection itself tells me the power of God. In fact, Ephesians and Galatians and other passages of Scripture, Paul uses that analogy and says, the very same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the very same power that will change your life. 
So don't be afraid of what you bring to God. He's a big God with big shoulders and he can take anything that you have, anything you've done in your life that is broken and he can bring wholeness to it. It's the second part, the thing we need to remember. If you have a fear, come to God. He's not going to chew you out. He's not going to condemn you. He's going to say a wonderfully beautiful word to you and it's what? Shalom, peace, wholeness. That's who God is. He wants to restore things and bring things back. And how does he do that? He evidences that by the scriptures and by seeing the prints in his hands. That's what we do. We're going to talk about that next week with Thomas. You have believed because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Do you know you're blessed this morning? If you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a blessed person. Why? Because even though you've not seen, you believe in the prince. You believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's powerful, church. And if you have believed that, then you need to know this, that final remedy that God gives us to overcome fear, especially as he gives you a job to do. Because if you've come to Christ, you all have one. You've got a particular divine purpose in your life, but he's not left you alone in regards to it. He's given you something internally that will be with you forever and ever, and it's the person of the Holy Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity will always be with you, giving you first of all new life, and as we move towards Pentecost, And subsequently, he gives you new life through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through the empowerment of God. Amazing things to think about. This is a reminder to all of us today of what the risen Savior desires to do in our lives. To not live in fear, to live in peace, to live with evidence, to know we have a divine call on our life, and to know that we've got a new birth and a person the third person of the Trinity residing within us that's going to now help us to do that well. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? And that all happened on the same night that Jesus rose from the dead. It's pretty powerful. That's what God gives to you. Think about that. Give thanks for him as we close. Can we do that? Father, we love you. Thanks for your goodness to us. Bless us as your people. We are already blessed. Help us to not live in fear, Father. Help us to live in shalom and peace and wholeness. Um, God, thank you for the evidence that you give to us in the scriptures, the truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus said in John 17. We live by it. We thank you for it. Thank you for the divine, the divine mission and commission that you've placed upon our life to reach other people for Jesus, to serve each other, to serve our world, to love God. And we thank you, Father, that we've got this new birth because of what the Holy Spirit has done, because he's taken up residence within us, because we have received a new breath, we can breathe. It's an amazing thing to think about, Father. Thank you for all of these wonderful gifts you give to us, living in a world especially that pushes us into fear. We push back with shalom. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, please, amen. Thank you so much. If we can pray